the path doesn't have to be straight. We have enough information that we can value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Welcome back to We Get Real AF, everyone. I'm Vanessa Alava. And I'm Sue Robinson. Please remember to like, comment, and subscribe to the show. We are delighted to be joined by the founder of a nonprofit organization researching the benefits, risks, and ethical implications of exponential technologies, Branca Panic of AI Peace. Branca is leading the way to solving some of the biggest global challenges by combining data-driven and human-centric approaches. Her primary goal, creating lasting peace via diverse and ethically influenced artificial intelligence. Branca, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you, Sue and Vanessa. It's such a pleasure to be here. Branca, how can our listeners connect with you online? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and also on our website, uh, AIforpeace.org. Those are the two best ways to get in touch and stay in touch with me. Fantastic. Well, let's get right into it. How do you feel tech can help us resolve issues surrounding conflict and violence? Well, uh, at the very beginning, I think it's important to clarify that I don't see any technology as a silver bullet. So uh, technology is not a magical solution. Uh, Any technology can be used and misused. And even when used with uh, good intentions, uh, my experience and experience of other people who are working in the field is showing that we can have uh, unintended consequences. Um, And Uh, We can ask ourselves, is that a reason to stop developing technologies? Um, I don't think so. Should we stop using them because of that? I also don't think so. Uh, So even looking into these big big world challenges uh, or or humanitarian challenges that AI for Peace is tackling, uh, I think we we see uh, even more reasons to concentrate on any helping hand uh, that we can get. Uh, And we are struggling with so many of those challenges for previous decades. And this is why I think we have a sort of a moral responsibility, actually, to look into all directions, and technologies are one of this uh, direction. And let me uh, share maybe with you two and and listeners some numbers that are always uh, in the back of my head when I'm thinking about my work and shaping my work. And this is this shocking number of 420 million children. So that's nearly one in five that live in conflict-affected areas. Or let's look at uh, people uh, who are refugees or migrants. So th- there are nearly 70.8 million people who were who were displaced. And what is even more concerning, uh, that's the fact that this number is growing every single year. So I think we should be capable to make this uh, number smaller and tackle these problems better and better, but we are not. And this is why I think, let's try it. Let's look into technologies. Uh, And I am not just to make this clear as well. I'm not a techno solutionist. So I am coming to this field being uh, passionate about peace 
And I don't think every problem can be solved with uh, technologies, uh, but we definitely need uh, any help uh, in tackling conflict. And, and I think uh, um, some technologies can be that helping hand. I found it to be very interesting when we were initially speaking with you about coming onto the show. Um, you made a comment about peace having uh, different uh, definitions throughout the world. So can you touch on that for us? Define what positive peace is and what we can do to sustain peaceful societies. Most of the people throughout the world, when we mention peace, so usually the first association is conflict, right? So uh, we think about starting stopping conflict or stopping violence. Uh, and this is this concept, uh, what we call negative peace. Uh, for example, um, when we have a, a ceasefire, um, uh, negative peace is happening. Or when something negative that is happening stops, we have negative peace. So violence stopped or oppression stopped. But what we in this field want to say is this is not enough. So it's not enough to think only about violence and stopping violence. We think that there is something crucial in peace that is happening in our society that we need to concentrate on. And this is why we talk about this concept of positive peace. So positive peace is filled with positive contents. This means building relationships, creating social systems that serve the needs of the whole population, not only the privileged ones in the society, a society in which we have constructive approaches to uh, resolving uh, conflicts. So this is what we call positive peace. Um, and peace does not mean... Uh, total absence of any conflict. I think this can be interesting for the audience uh, to know. And I think this is something that we intuitively know from our own lives. Conflict can be constructive and we can uh, grow as better people out of conflicts. Uh, we can grow our relationships out of conflicts. The same thing happens with uh, countries as well and societies, different groups. What is important is that we don't solve these conflicts in violent way. And on top of that, what you just mentioned, how we differently perceive uh, peace in different parts of the world, I think this is crucial for any part of the world to understand that we need to concentrate on sustaining peace, not only um, ending uh, conflicts. So we need to look at peace as a process. You know, many, many people uh, see peace as a, a sort of a box, you know, to click, like which countries are peaceful and which are not peaceful. I think even what we perceive today as peaceful countries, they need to work a lot on sustaining peace. And just being, uh, in a way, a newcomer in U.S., so I've lived here for, for three years, I see that even the United States has to uh, work on sustaining uh, peace, protecting human rights and freedoms, working on good governance, on economic security of vulnerable populations, uh, working on rule of law, building institutions, um, making sure that all of the, all communities flourish and that we have this diversity of, of representatives and that we recognize women and young people and civil society. So this is all what sustaining peace uh, means. So you started out giving some very eye-opening statistics about the numbers of people around the world, children and just people in general who are living in conflict. How can 
artificial intelligence be used to address that? How can technology, which we know can cut both ways, be good and bad, how specifically is your organization using it to try to address those regions of conflict? Maybe before jumping into AI, because I I think um, uh, AI for peace is quite a new field. And if we can call it a field at all, I think many people will understand better maybe what technologies uh, in general are are doing in, in advancing peace, I think already in the 90s, we started utilizing as a, as a peace building field, uh, just basic technologies. So uh, how we are communicating now using Skype or different communications tools to facilitate communications between people uh, in different parts of the world. And then these technologies started slowly to uh, be available to general population. And then somewhere in 2000, ordinary people started just developing their social movements. They started sharing even uh, uh, regular SMS or photos or videos. There were In those countries, there were no gatekeepers anymore. So you couldn't have a government anymore telling you uh, what is happening in your own country. You had a way as a citizen to exchange information and to make sure that your society is developing as a peaceful society. And let me just uh, give uh, um, an example that is uh, a sort of a a real book example for anybody who is interested in this topic. And this is this really amazing story of a movement uh, called Ushahidi. Um, And Ushahidi is Swahili word for witness. And uh, this is uh, a movement started in Kenya in 2008 by software developers and uh, designers who uh, decided to build this platform of exchange of text messages and emails when a violence is happening in a certain area. Um, And in this way, we received basically the real-time information and we were able to uh, react uh, quickly uh, to something. We we didn't need to wait for government to respond or for authorities to inform us or maybe even not inform us. In certain cases, government doesn't want to share information about this. So citizens somehow felt empowered by this. And as you said, and as I tried to emphasize at the beginning, any technology can be used and misused. So so different malicious actors realize this potential as well and unfortunately started using it to harm uh, populations. And, and this is what we are trying to work on as well, to, to safeguard vulnerable people and our communities from this malicious use of, of technologies. But, but let's maybe jump to um, artificial intelligence and try to give people a a feeling how this new technology um, can be used in peace building. Human rights research and activists are again in my field, in, in peace building and human rights protection, the ones who are really trying to utilize this. Um, and they often rely on, on photos and videos uh, shared through uh, virtual networks to document war crimes, atrocities, and human rights violations. And what AI is 
enabling us to do now is actually process this vast amount of information more quickly uh, because more people got an access to even a regular mobile phone. We have this entire movement of so-called citizen witnesses. <laughs> so we are all able to document uh, what is happening out there in any society uh, when we see in U.S. when protests are happening in any other country, uh, wherever people have this simple technology as mobile phone, they can uh, collect the evidence. But what we as human rights defenders um, have as a challenge now is this vast amount of content that is out there. Uh, so let me give uh, an example from a civil society organization from Yemen that is trying to document the evidence of war crimes in Yemen. Uh, and they're receiving so much material. So they're scrapping information, photos and videos from social media, from any news articles, any newspapers, anything that is posted uh, online, and they're trying to process this as evidence. And with all of the materials that they received in previous couple of years since the war started, we as humans would need seven and a half years to process all of this. With the help of machine learning, what we have today, this quick processing of, of information and of uh, contents, the machine learning algorithm needs 30 days to process this. So you can imagine what kind of helping hand this is. So for these people who are actually going through this, who are uh, who need justice in this entire process, who need some protection, this is really crucial to have these materials processed earlier. And there are many other technologies under this umbrella of artificial intelligence that can potentially uh, help us as peace builders. Natural language processing is one of them that is very popular, so to say, in previous years or, or got this incredible development. Uh, and in our field, we are just exploring currently the potential of it. And it seems that it will be really crucial because when you work globally, you work with populations and, and people that are, that are speaking so many languages. And we as humans usually don't have that capacity, right, to speak so many languages. So having this, again, helping hand of NLP, of natural language processing to process those, la those languages, and not only languages, even dialects of certain populations. So working in Afghanistan, for example, with locals and being able to get a real-time feedback from them uh, about certain issues, about um, uh, political decisions that are being made, uh, peace agreements, we believe that this will be a huge benefit that we can get in, in our field. When you gather this intelligence and you process it and you quickly identify human rights violations or other areas of conflict, what do you do with that information? That's a very good question, Sue, because it's a very complicated process. And ideally, that information should go to court and should actually serve as a proof to um, achieve justice. And this is not such a straightforward process because you need to have a proof that this is authentic content as well, which is, again, something that technology can be very helpful for us. But there is another dim dimension of this uh, issue that we need to pay attention to, and that's actually protecting people People who are giving us these materials. So very often they can put themselves in danger by posting something like this. 
And again, there is uh, this community of technologies who are developing these technologies are really paying attention to this and trying to encode this content in a proper way to uh, not reveal their identity or to save uh, the original look of this proof so it's actually able to be uh, used in, in court. And there was a first uh, case in the European Court of Justice, I believe, of, of such a material being used. Unfortunately, the entire field is being much more complicated now with deep fakes and deep fake technology coming to place. I was going to ask you about that. (laughs) (laughs) It's really deep fakes are my uh, uh, big area of interest. And um, I think it will uh, uh, be a huge problem. Uh, We see it even now in in the United States with elections coming and how much attention is being given to deep fakes. But even internationally, globally, um, countries, developing countries, not only developed countries, have problems with this. And there is this two-side problem of deep fakes, not only uh, sharing deep fakes and not knowing if they're originals or not, but even claiming that anything can be deep fake. Uh, this this is this fake new complex fake news uh, complex, right? Uh, we shouldn't be we shouldn't allow authorities uh, or anybody to claim that anything is fake. We need to know today what is real and what is not real. Um, and again, I, I'm really hopeful, and I see uh, that a lot of work is being done in this area from technology side to actually uh, figure out which contents are deep fake and uh, not putting the this uh, emphasis on individuals and citizens to know that because I think that will be absolutely impossible. Not only experts can sometimes know, but again, use AI and uh, use different machine learning technologies to recognize or automatically which contents are fake and which are real. Uh, And then again, to put additional accountability to social media networks uh, and companies uh, to take their responsibilities themselves as well and to flag this content to us as, as fake or not fake. When you say using AI, it's also the public trusting that that AI is giving them the honest and truthful information. So we also talk about the importance of uh, education in this space and knowing what's out there, being aware, um, and then just trusting that there are people out there like you and others that are helping evolve, you know, where the ethics of this goes and how things are are handled uh, moving forward. So let's talk about that a little bit, um, the importance of tech education and the potential implications. Vanessa, I think this is an excellent question. And on top of education, uh, you mentioned this trust issue, which I think will be crucial in, in the next years and in the future in approaching all new technologies and especially artificial intelligence because once you lose trust it's it will be very hard to gain it back um, so we really need to work carefully on this and and I personally I'm against any generalizations uh, I think that we can't say immediately we don't trust AI generally it's such a too complex issue and feel to make such a claim but we should really be careful in analyzing each and every application separately and and really know when this technology can harm us and this is very connected with your question about education um, uh, and not only when I think about education I think about 
our youngest citizens, I think, about primary, secondary education. And, and I think that's uh, very important for AI. But in this topic, I think all of us have a responsibility to educate ourselves. Uh, it's not only a school issue. Um, and I would like to mention and, and maybe give a bit of visibility to one organization that I'm following in this field, and that's AI for All. And they are really doing amazing work in reaching out to school children, primary, secondary. And they have this amazing quote that I'm using very often, that AI is going to change the world, but who is going to change AI? So mm-hmm. this is this crucial question and I love this quote it's it's such an important thing for us to think about uh, who are people who will create uh, AI and not only create who are people who will change it when we flag uh, some issues as citizens uh, when we see uh, this is this again trust issue how we will trust you know any changes or any applications out there when we know that people who were creating are not representing our society properly if you don't have this diversity and inclusion. Maybe this is my nature of being optimistic, but I'm again hopeful uh, seeing that many organizations are realizing um, that this uh, education can't be uh, left only to official universities or schools that are too expensive for for all of us to to afford it. So AI for All is one of uh, these organizations, and there are a lot of them uh, internationally working in developing countries uh, with kids who can't afford uh, some expensive education. But these organizations are opening pathways Um, And some of them are actually developing this amazing concept of cooperative work. Um, AI for Peace had a a chance to cooperate with one of them. We did a project together at the beginning of a pandemic uh, to evaluate the impacts of lockdown policies to most vulnerable populations. Uh, And this organization is functioning as a platform connecting data scientists on any level or aspiring data scientists throughout the world. And there is a huge diversity between these people. And they are teaching each other and they work cooperatively and they believe that the best possible impacts of these projects will not be created by competition. They will be created by cooperation, which I think it's quite a revolutionary uh, approach in a way, maybe because I'm embedded in the Silicon Valley and seeing this competition model working a lot. I really want this cooperative model to be um, uh, more present. This can be a, a solution for educating more people in AI. I think you're making a really uh, insightful point, Branka, because it seems to me that what we're talking about is is who holds power, right? And, and typically mm-hmm. when a party has a concentration, a party meaning a person or a group of people that are like-minded have a concentration of power, that's when power is abused. And so it's so important with these emerging technologies like artificial intelligence that that power, it does not reside solely in the hands of the data scientists, because you need to have a a democratization of that information and that ability in order to hold everybody accountable, right? And it's interesting to me because, you know, a lot of the the oppressed groups, the groups of people who are struggling are very 
often economically oppressed as well and don't have access to understanding AI, right? I mean, they're just trying to survive. So um, it seems like a, a big uphill climb that we have ahead of us, but it's so, so important that we don't allow that power, that understanding of how these technologies work to reside only in the hands of an elite few. Absolutely, uh, Sue. And sometimes it's not only about abuse of power, sometimes it's used with unintended consequences. And this is happening when the power is concentrated in a a small number of people or or groups that are not diverse. So there are a lot of blind spots out there. Uh, And it's natural somehow that we, that's why they're called blind spots. We don't see them. Uh, And this is exactly why we need this diversity. Uh, We don't necessarily need to have everybody included, but we can consult certain populations. And this is what this entire movement of um, AI ethics or uh, tech ethicist uh, is trying to do, trying to point to those blind spots and make sure that certain pathways are open for a diverse group to get engaged in this process of consultations. Uh, That doesn't mean that we all need to be data scientists. (laughs) This is something that I want to emphasize. And I'm not data scientist by myself. I really enter this field and I'm learning more and more about it because I see what the impact and potential is. But I think it will be necessary for all of us to do that. This is how our lives are impacted and all spheres of our lives are impacted by AI, that we just need to be more quick in realizing what this technology is. We can't stop it uh, or not all applications uh, and the developments of algorithms. Um, Although we see even in this direction, uh, this is an incredible achievement of academy and civil society movement in the U.S., how they managed to stop the facial recognition uh, using law enforcement. I think this is really incredible. So there is a power there as well uh, in us and individuals when we see that certain application is negative and have negative consequences, especially uh, uh, towards a vulnerable group, we have a voice. But this group of researchers who concentrated on on facial recognition did an amazing work to explain to regular citizens what does this actually mean? What is algorithmic bias? uh, And how are these algorithms harming uh, populations once they're used in law enforcement? Um, So that's that's really amazing achievement. Branka, you highlight such an amazing point, and it goes back into the education piece in general, um, where, yes, schools, students, but educating the policymakers. And you have a resource through AI for Peace that is, is, is literally called AI Policymakers Guide. Talk about that and the resources that are contained within that guide and how it helps people really understand exactly what you're talking about. Why, hey, this seems like it would be a good idea, but it actually is not such a good idea because of X, Y, and Z, dot, dot, dot. Yes, exactly. The the guide was created exactly because of the things that I mentioned. Uh, once we piloted AI for Peace and, and before we officially piloted, we realized uh, many of the, these things that we are talking about today, uh, and we realized that policymakers are not quick enough to, um, to follow what is happening in this field. 
And we call it policymakers, but basically it can be applied to anybody who is not a data scientist or a computer scientist. Uh, so the idea was just to translate these complicated concepts that are out there uh, and often scary expressions uh, and, and this science methodology. And uh, we apply this human-centered method human -centered methodology when we started working on it because we explored the field and we realized that there are AI guides out there. However, they're so complicated um, that people usually don't stay with them. They uh, open them, go through first two pages, and it's just too overwhelming. And we wanted to avoid this feeling of being overwhelmed with AI and complexity of AI. Uh, so this was the idea to explain it uh, in an easy way, to uh, give uh, a bunch of resources out there. So it's an interactive guide where people can really um, read the basics or go in depth uh, through uh, certain links and see what is happening out there. Uh, what is artificial general intelligence? What is narrow intelligence to be able to understand, you know, when they feel scared about this uh, Terminator type of <laughs> AI, are we there yet or are we so far away from it? Um, and, and to also know applications. So what is really happening in the field? Uh, we are mentioning there only some of the industries, some examples uh, like automotive industry or medicine or education, what is happening in education. Um, so I really believe, and, and uh, this is an open source, so I would like to invite uh, all of your listeners to um, have a look at it. If if they felt scared at any time uh, uh, that this topic is too complicated, it's not. Start from the guide and it will just help you understand some of this and, and make sure that you act as a, a responsible citizen as well and make sure that you know what your rights are in this process, how AI can help you protect these rights and how AI maybe in some situations can violate them. Hey everybody, Sam McLean here from Inphase Audio, audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. I'd love Thanks to pivot listening. just a little bit and talk about your personal journey and how you became passionate about human rights and technology. Well, I... I'm originally from Balkans, <laughs> from Serbia, uh, and I, I truly believe that my personal background uh, affected uh, my choice of work a lot. I grew up in an area uh, that was impacted by different uh, wars and conflicts, um, and just going through this entire process, um, um, I think, shaped my wish to do whatever I can to make sure we um, avoid conflicts or uh, to help kids not go through this if, if we can. And I still can't believe, honestly, that in 21st century, we are still talking about this. Uh, as a civilization, we managed to solve so many problems and challenges, and we are still uh, struggling with this one. Um, so this is my motivation in general to work in peace building field. And then 
looking at how new technologies are impacting our lives. Um, I uh, um, went into that field as well. And the first work I've done in that area was uh, with refugees who were coming from Middle East and North Africa. Uh, when we started applying um, this knowledge of, of technologies and we realized that refugees are always having, um, no matter how little uh, things they can bring with themselves on this path of uh, finding a new home, they always had a, a smartphone uh, or a phone. So we started thinking how we can proactively use this technology to help them and somehow Step by step, I ended up in U.S. Uh, and did a research. I got a peace uh, fellowship to do a research uh, in the place that I call my home now, North Carolina, uh, beautiful Durham. And I've done a research there on AI and machine learning and how we can uh, apply them proactively to advance peace building and to protect the, the, the rights of vulnerable populations. So this was somehow my personal road into AI, but still staying committed to uh, building peace. The convergence of technology and your passion and something that you've you've carried with you that's very important to you. So that's awesome. Uh, we talk about that a lot on this show. Anybody that's aspiring to get into a field that such as this one that might seem um, heavy at times, it doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. You can merge two different things that you like and come together. I have a question. We've talked about so many different things, education, AI, policymakers, et cetera. Um, we have had certain conversations with people in this topic or, uh, specifically where it's like what comes first, the chicken or the egg type of thing, where even in research and development on products, you have to have somebody in the room, the one person that says, hey, AI ethics here or ethics for technology, are we mm -hmm. thinking of this in this way? How can we combat that? Because I feel that when we have the answer to that, <laughs> we can further progress um, your mission, our mission, and in trying to really implement this as a regular common conversation. That's such a great question. And, and I think that this is crucial because we really need these people. You know, They are heroes. Uh, and uh, I, I think there is maybe a step before that, that we can uh, do as a community to um, maybe give uh, a little bit of strength to those people. And this is something that is happening in AI field now. And this is um, the dedication of the entire community to adopt certain principles and to commit to those principles. And those are the ethical uh, principles for AI. And many institutions, not only in the industry, uh, but in the government as well, uh, international organizations, even humanitarian sector where I work, which is usually far behind this development in the industries, is working on this. So this is not a guarantee that ethical principles will be followed in practice, but it's really important beginning. Uh, so putting the frameworks and giving even your employees the signal that this is important. And you also as an individual want to work in a company and organization that follows such principles. The second step is this one, as what you mentioned, how we empower those individuals to actually give red flag. And I think this is something 
and this is really a responsibility on them to be those ethical voices as well and to say, wait a minute, we adopted those uh, principles. Some companies are having ethical uh, boards as well, um, the different ethical frameworks that they developed for their own companies. So you need as an individual to flag this out. And then there is uh, an entire movement uh, um, that is trying to enable the institutional uh, change through voices of these people to actually embed the process, ethical processes in the institution so that ethics is not something that comes from outside. It's not uh, something that we have to red flag as an issue. It becomes embedded in the processes, how you work. And we go back to this education Again, because many people are um, advocating for this, that we need to have ethics classes in data science or computer sciences. Many universities, believe it or not, don't have ethics or they don't cover philosophy. But but I personally believe we will not solve it but by having one class or c- mm-hmm. certificate in ethics, this really needs to be embedded uh, in everything that we do in this field. Yeah, it absolutely has to be part of the culture. I think people can't just learn how to build amazing tools. They have to understand the power that those tools have and how those powers can be used productively or abused. Um, And to me, if you don't have both, both those skill sets, then you're setting yourself up for real trouble. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Mm-hmm. It's something that Sue and I love to talk about because obviously, you know, the fact that we're still talking about it and have a thousand questions means there's so much more work to be done. So we really appreciate and admire the work that you're doing and um, would love to continue to keep in touch with you to see how you progress with uh, AI for Peace. This has been so great because I think to go back to your point, Branca, everybody needs to understand why they need to understand <laughs> about things like AI. Because because it, we all have to have a voice and we all have to know the, the potential. So thank you for reminding us of that. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, let's hit up the lightning round now. Let's do it. All right, Bronca, our lightning round. I know it sounds scary, but it's basically just us firing off questions in an effort to get to know you better on a personal level. So it should be fun. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, if you say that my profession is peace building, then obviously I would uh, like to go into AI. That's for sure. But I would also like to experiment a bit with combining AI with art. Um Art is my big passion, and I don't think I'm dedicating enough time uh, for that. So I would combine some artificial intelligence with art creation. We've had so many uh, technology slash artists on this show. I I love that. I think it's cool. How do you define success? I think uh, it's really important for people to know who they are and what makes them happy. Um, And if they find that happiness... uh, that means that they are successful. Uh, I truly believe that we shouldn't um, follow any frameworks or uh, standards that are given to us by uh, societies and just, yeah, follow your heart. (laughs) What resources do you wish existed for women in tech or looking to get into tech? Well, I really think it depends from where you are uh, geographically based, I think. Some countries have more resources than uh, others. Uh, But what is, uh, in general, the case for everybody, I believe, is mentorship. 
um, I truly believe that men mentorship has such a strong uh, role, especially for women in tech or women in AI. Um, and not having the official resources that we often think we need should not be an obstacle. Uh, and I think having uh, an amazing mentor can be a helping um, a hand to realize this and to advance even without having uh, some advanced uh, technical resources. What is the weirdest food you've ever eaten? I think a good deal of backpacking when I was younger. I visited a lot of interesting countries. But let's say the strangest one is, I'm not sure if the grasshopper would be the right expression in English, or there is a, a, another a name for the animal that they um, deep uh, fry in Mexico, mm -hmm. uh, and they serve it as a snack. Uh, so that would probably be the one. I like crunch, but that takes crunch to a different <laughs> level. <laughs> uh, what is something about you that people would be surprised to find out? One thing that is surprising that I climbed the active volcano, maybe that would be a surprising uh, part without actually ever doing any advanced hiking or anything. Uh, that was the most crazy thing I probably did in my life. <laughs> If you could start a movement that was guaranteed to go global, what would it be? Well, I think that one is obvious. AI for peace, I plan uh, and I hope this movement will uh, become a global one. But then going back to my original passion as well, um, stopping conflicts definitely would be another one that I would like us to do globally. <laughs> what myth about women in your field or women in STEM would you like to dispel? Well, I think that people often think that women are not prone to this field because they look at numbers and they see how low they are, um, not only in STEM in general, uh, computer sciences or, or AI. And I think this is something that we need to, to break because there are a lot of reasons, structural reasons, why women are not in the field um, in, with the same numbers that men are or why they're not staying in the field. So this is definitely something that I would work on. How have you surprised yourself in your career journey thus far? I think the, the biggest surprise is actually switching in a way my life from work that I was doing back in Europe. Uh, I had my career there, so I left as a mid-career scientist or mid-career professional uh, deciding to leave work and go back to school. Um, and uh, um, that was probably something uh, surprising even for myself because I have a very strict rules of for things that I'm doing. So this was something that was outside of these rules. And that was probably the best decision that I did, putting myself out of my comfort zone and going back to school after so many years. All right. You made it to the last question in the lightning round, Bronca. Fill in the blank, blank like a girl. Thrive like a girl. Well, Bronca, again, thank you so much for your time and for just shedding more light on this very important topic. And hopefully all together, we will, we will bring light to this. <laughs> this will no longer be an issue in the future. We will look back. Hopefully my daughter will look back and say, wow. Really? You guys didn't think about the ethics of technology? <laughs> <laughs> well, and hopefully uh, everything that you're doing will help to advance peace. Uh, you know, that's something that we all hope for. So um, may we leverage and harness our technology 
for the purpose of peace. That sounds like a great goal for everyone. Well, you two are, are playing a, a great part and role in this as well. I think you're uh, an amazing platform for people to showcase their work and to um, spread their voices and, and motivate other people. So I was personally really motivated with so many people uh, and so many women that you brought to the show. And I can just be hopeful that my story will be motivated maybe for somebody uh, else to enter the field. Uh, so thank you both for doing this. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, you embody tech for good. So this yes. has been an honor. So thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. Please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF. And visit our website at www.WeGetRealAF.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. And we want to give a special thanks to Florence Lumsden, our associate producer for the We Get Real AF podcast. You can find Flo on LinkedIn at Florence Lumsden, L-U-M-S-D-E-N, or at her website, danceandflowproductions.com. That's D-A-N-C-I-N-F-L-O Productions. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women. <laughs>